Behold the rising tide, dark the fathoms of the ocean wide. Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. There is something compelling about these worlds where the supernatural isn't seen as supernatural, it's just part of life. The song you're listening to is called The Whale, one of seven pieces that feature in the audiobook version of Wild, tales from early medieval Britain. We'll come back to The Whale a little later. Looking back on our medieval past, the world and its people would be near unrecognisable. Wilderness dominated the landscape. Nature was a beast to be feared and admired in equal measure, shrouded so completely in mystery that only tales of the supernatural could begin to unravel its secrets. Wilde takes us on a journey through impenetrable marshes, sheer cliffs and explosive seas to showcase the power and beauty of nature, with hopeful messages for the present. Amy Jeffs, an art historian specialising in the Middle Ages, is the book's author, and I'm delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. Deliciously Spooky. Earth, Ocean, Forest, Beast, Fen, Catastrophe, Paradise. The seven chapters of Wilde each retell stories from medieval poetry and legend and explore the British landscape. Before writing the book, Amy went caving under the Mendip Hills, meeting hibernating lesser horseshoe bats and researching barrow burials and exploring the East Anglian fens. She visited ruined Whitby Abbey, delving into the history of whaling, and searched Selwood Forest for the roots of wild man legends. Though the period being written about in Wild is so far removed from the present day, it feels so incredibly familiar. An age of conversion and migration and belief in monsters, demons, angels and omens in the sky. Could the past be sending us a message about today? I mean, these texts have felt urgent and relevant to me since I was about 17, 18. And I think that's only increased as the issues that we are facing today have entered the headlines. And so it's applicable. I suppose that's it. It's, it's, not, it's not meant to be an allegory or anything like that. But I think that that fear of the threat of doom and that search for meaning is perhaps universal. And it can be quite terrifying. I mean, when I... The, the inspiration for this book came, I mean, it, it came in waves, but one of the most significant waves was after I had given birth. And you're just, um, the re- reality is so, is so vivid. And even watching films or adverts or hearing a snippet of the news can sort of send you into, you're so raw, you're like a crustacean without your shell. And I think that these poems gave me a way of, um, and these the texts and the artefacts that I used to explore the ideas in Wild, gave me a way of processing reality that I found to be beautiful. And that gave me hope. You talked about a search for meaning. And one of the things that 
comes up on this show occasionally, not as often as I would like, because I think it's a really important point, but storytelling does not have its roots in language. It has its roots in visual representations of tales. And, and it's become a linguistic construct because we have invented language. But so much of early storytelling is about meaning and trying to find meaning. And, and some of the things that you describe in the book, whether it be weather or light, or when we get to it, and we'll, we'll come on to this a bit later on, a, a dead whale being washed up on the beach. If you're an early civilization, member of early civilization, and you'd not seen these things before, I think you'd be utterly terrified by many of them. And so a lot mm. of what you're describing, to me at least, sounds as if it's people trying to understand what is happening to them. And of course, the source material that you refer to is ultimately what we get left with. But if you can um, just let's hang there for a second. If you'd never seen, mm. for example, a whale washed up. I have no idea what you would think it even was. I think you'd run a mile, wouldn't you? Yes. I mean, I think that we like to think now that we've kind of plumbed the mysteries of sky and sea. And of course we haven't. And perhaps perhaps there was a similar arrogance then, you know, this idea that we understood it all and that those stories about what a whale was and how it how it was an allegory for the devil and how it ensnared sailors by pretending to be an island. That was all that kind of let's fit this monstrous, mysterious thing into our worldview and make sense of it. Uh, we never know how limited our worldviews are, do we? We always think we found it. We've worked it out now. That's how I understood the whale. And I think that the allegory that it is used for is still, even though it's Christian in the medieval sense, is still relevant now. Yeah, I, I, I was not at all familiar with the connection between the whale and the devil. And it was absolutely fascinating to read that. I want to talk about the dead, if that's not too morbid. Um, no, I love talking about Wonderful. Um, I, something else I'd never considered, the use of, I've always looked at um, graves, and you see this a lot on the battlefield, for example, is that bodies may be perhaps not buried under the ground, but perhaps piled with, with rocks and stones. And I had never considered that to be anything other than some form of privacy that the dead must be allowed some kind of rest without people looking at them. So mm -hmm. to hear the, or to read the phrase, the stones are being used to keep the dead from walking sent a proper chill right, <laughs> through, through me because I had never considered that that's what it was designed to do. It was, it's almost as if we're saying that if we don't do this, the spirit of this person will rise and might come back and might not be very happy about what's <laughs> happened to them, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's such a huge topic, isn't it? So I'll stick to the early Middle Ages and specifically Anglo-Saxon England. I was um, fascinated by a book called Deviant Burial Practices in Anglo-Saxon England by Andrew Fabulous title. Isn't it? And so he, he looks... Um, he looks especially at execution cemeteries where there is strong evidence um, from the corporeal remains that these people died in, in from things like an axe or sword blow to the back of the neck or uh, from hanging or they've had their, their hands tied in front of them. And he, he um, particularly notices that there is a 
a lot of execution cemeteries from that period, from post-conversion Anglo-Saxon England, are situated in prehistoric burial mounds. And so these are these are people who have have been outcast from society. They've been put to death, and then they've been buried somewhere away from the heart of the community. Burial mounds are often on the on on boundaries, territory boundaries. And so I think that circumstantial evidence means that when you find one of them with a great big millstone on their chest or a quernstone, it's also known, there is a certain suggestion of superstition. I mean, the burial mounds themselves, and this is something I go into more in the first chapter, Earth, were arguably perceived to be kind of hotspots of, of spiritual malevolence. And so there's something, this isn't a practical thing. You're not burying the executed criminals in a burial mound because it's easier. You know, you're doing it because something it's something superstitious going on here and I think the same can be said when you find a great big stone weighing one of them down and you know this was explored in more depth by a scholar called Sarah Semple the kind of um, literary evidence for this these kinds of superstitions and that's really the focus of my first chapter around beliefs around the earth and the body in the earth. There are many reasons why I think listeners of this show need your work in their lives I'd like to share one because you don't just talk about the dead and you don't just unpick practices around the dead. You, you actually feel it. And I just want to read something because I wasn't there and I'm never going to go there. I'm only ever going to experience this through the medium of your words, but you were there. Right. And this is what it did to you. I, like, it did the same to me from a distance of you know, however, however far I am from, from this place, but you write, the hair on the back of my neck prickled as if the trapped spirit of an executed soul were curled in the dark beside me, waiting among the condemned for a lover who had left her to die. I cannot tell you, Amy, how utterly terrifying that is. To, to read. What was that like? Because you were there, you walked this ground, you've crouched in these spaces. What was that like? Oh, it was magical. Yeah, but it's um, that, that barrow, um, Stony Littleton, we went there, it was icy it was the morning um freezing cold day and I crouched down to go into the barrow there's a there's a a large slab of rock to the left of the entrance that's got a a big ammonite on it it's original ammonite impression you crawl in and you crawl past the the passageways where the the cremated remains of and I think um skeletal remains even of men women and children were found as this kind of bronze age passage tomb and uh and I crawled all the way to the back and the whole time I was, I was imagining the protagonist of the, of the story that I'd been working on. And, um, but you, there's some, there was something so, when I went in there, it was like, it was warm, you know, it was, it was freezing cold day outside, but it, it sort of been in the, the, the mound itself had like insulated the air in the tunnel. So it was like misty. It was like I was in a theater set, you know, um, a stage set with kind of mist curling over the floor. And, and I was looking around me and by the kind of half light, the raking light from the winter sun, I could see these fossils in the walls. And, you know, there was something like curling up at the end of the passage and and looking back towards the entrance I felt almost like the an ammonite myself you know it was like the uh millennia sort of fell away and the whole kind of briefness of life you know it was just I actually found it amazingly uplifting and spooky in a really delicious way um and it was it was actually at my desk and reflecting back on it and then putting it in the context of the story that I'd been writing that it became much more macabre and that's because the protagonist of this story for the first chapter 
her story isn't implausible and it was reality that people were, were executed and buried in these mounds in that period and sometimes with their children and those traumas are real so that was that was when it became more terrifying i suppose chapter two time is a continuum Amy has an incredible ability to write for all of your senses. You can smell the mound, feel what it's like to be inside. You can hear the silence. It deafens. This ability to sense and experience the past without living through it reminds me of previous conversations with mudlarker Lara Maitlam and the author of London Clay, Tom Chivers, who both spoke of the lives of objects and their ability to project us back through the millennia. For many, visiting the places Amy has been, crouching through burial mounds, it might seem like a frightening thing to do, but she revels in it and learns so much. But experiencing nature in this way, does it alter your relationship with the landscape? I'm definitely looking for kind of imaginative fixes. Um, you know, if there's something that gives me that used to give me chills and still does, when I first started studying history, it was the sudden realization that time really was a continuum that we weren't it's like when you stand looking at looking at a view and i don't know if this is just me but sometimes i want to just think of that view as two-dimensional almost like it's a photograph and and you're looking out across hills or whatever it might be and then you suddenly realize that every single one of those trees is covered in leaves and each of those leaves has an underside that you can't see and each of <laughs> each underside of a leaf has microbes on it and you know and you suddenly think of the surface area of what you're looking at and you're overawed by it and I think that can happen with history too where when you're when you're somewhere where you feel that unbroken connection to the past and that really it's 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 real you know it's not we haven't made it up we're not looking at it like a photograph it's these people lived and they felt and they mourned and they loved and that's so so mind-boggling and inspiring and I think it it gives me a great sense of urgency to to seize life with both hands that that idea of you know, from dust we came into dust we will return that sense of cycle that connection with the landscape in some of the old english elegies that i use for for the opening chapter on earth i think you really sense the emotions of the the narrator and of the therefore of also of the poet who was you know, the, isn't, we don't know who wrote these things. We, they probably were composed in an oral tradition fairly long time before they were actually written down. They survive in a 10th century manuscript. So that's already really, really old. <laughs> and um, and yet the, the things they're describing, the fear of death, the fear of isolation, the imaginative impact of the landscape, those are things that we can identify with. And so maybe it, it does that thing of collapsing the centuries and and reminding us that we aren't somehow superior to our forebears or or different from them and in terms of my connection to the landscape oh it's just more exciting every you know every bit of research that I do every new thing that I learn you know the world becomes more visible and so whether it's the streets of Grimsby or (laughs) or mountains or prehistoric barrows if you've got the kind of mind that loves stories that wants that touch of the fantastical to kind of animate the world around you then then yes, it it does. It's been transformative and I hope it carries on. (laughs) It it certainly made me 
reflect on perhaps not my own relationship with the landscape, but my own literary recollections of landscape being used in in storytelling. There is a whole chapter about forest, and it, it made me think. I think perhaps inevitably about Shakespeare, who used the forest mm. as a storytelling device many, many times. It made me think, you know, of quite obvious references like Robin Hood and his Merry Men and people hanging out in the forest and all the stories that are set there. We have such a rich landscape for as storytellers that the only thing, and I say only in 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 air quotes, but the only thing we have to do is go and experience it and, and spend time in this space. And yet time mm. is a is a perhaps a luxury that, that we don't have. But what it has done is it has made me linger longer in green spaces and observe nature and observe trees. I'm fascinated by trees. Mm. And the reason I'm fascinated by trees is because big trees how and such an arresting visual image but trees also have roots and roots go underground and secrets live underground and history is underground yes. and all of that and this whole thing links together and it makes me think what is underneath the tree how old mm -hmm. is the tree and this tree has probably been there longer than I've been around yeah what's it seen what yeah. has it seen exactly mm -hmm. and and I think that that's really interesting what if it could talk what would it say? Would it say run a mile, you know, mm -hmm. or, or would it say you're safe or would it, does it see me as some kind of threat? Does it even know I exist? I find the whole thing fascinating. So I've been mm -hmm. thinking a lot about that and also perhaps about my own use of the landscape in, in stories. I'm fascinated by things like birdsong uh, and what it mm -hmm. means. I'm also fascinated by silence. And I, as I said, there is so much silence in this book that I wonder if it's, if it's something that, whereas I might see that as a warning sign and something quite oppressive, you see it very differently. You may see it as an opportunity to discover what happened in this particular space, because of course these people cannot talk, but maybe they're talking to you through the silence. I don't know. I think the sign, I mean, with the illustrations, the wood engravings, that one of the things that have got me onto the medium of relief printmaking, and you know, especially using just black ink and no colour, was this opportunity to um, to kind of glory in negative space visually. And so having areas of the illustrations that are left black is like the you know <laughs> visual equivalent of the great holes we have in the... Uh, documentary evidence in the even the you know the these many of these poems and artifacts they almost inspire more questions than they answer with their their narrative incompleteness or you know the, the fact of the missing body and the Sutton Hoo ship burial you know that sort of thing it's just they are those areas of black ink that that silence and I think it's so enticing and I think that we should enjoy making things up to fill it we should enjoy listening to it it's it's got an aesthetic power i think maybe sometimes it's oppressive but in an engaging and compelling way chapter three the work of giants
The stories of the supernatural in Wild are not stories of a foreign place, they're stories of our world. In medieval times, believing in the supernatural was the same as believing in the natural. There was no separation. And that's where these tales were born, from a place where understanding the world meant telling and believing fantastical stories. I said I'd come back to the whale, and as promised, here it is. The chapter Beast is not only a compelling example of this supernatural entanglement, but a refreshing story told from a unique perspective. I am lying on a beach. My mind is awash with anger at my neglect. How they let the water dry from my eyes and lips and let my weight settle on the sand. They let me starve, let brine crust on my tongue till the sight of their fearful faces throbbed with each beat of my perishing heart. When my life had left me, I clung as spirit to my bones. I watched as they came with lances and burst me open. In their hordes, they stripped away the skin and fat and buried my entrails in a pit. When just the white forest of my skeleton remained, foliated at first with flesh, nourishment for the birds, then bleached bright by the sun and bitter sleet, they put their hands on me. Let me crumble to sand dunes I willed the ground, to slide back to the sea in which I grew to my full strength. But the men did not let me be. Sores cut through my jaw and they took me in sections over the cliffs. They laid me in the hands of a nun who took me to her workshop and secured me in the mouth of a vice. As her brow furrowed and her breath shook the small hairs on her lip, I gnashed my teeth. I am here, I said. Can't you hear me? It's just wonderful. It's just, I find it fascinating when you take a narrative and you flip the perspective of it. And, and in this regard, we're thinking about the body of a, of a large creature. The chapter is called Beast. We're thinking about a whale that has washed up. Normally we might tell that story in one of two ways, either from a bunch of people in Victorian dress who've you know, built their own train station so mm -hmm. they can go to the beach to see this body and it's a day out. Or it's from the perspective of people who are trying to help the creature, you know, get it back in. This is slightly different. This is not just we are hacking this creature apart because either we believe we can use it for fuel or tools or whatever, or because we think it's part of the devil. We're doing that from the perspective of the creature that is being hacked apart. I think it's absolutely extraordinary. You mentioned earlier this association of the whale with the devil. Is that mm -hmm. because of its enormity? Is that because it just doesn't feel right when we measure ourselves with it? Where does that mm -hmm. come from? So it's probably, there are probably many reasons. I mean, one I will discuss is the story of Jonah. Jonah in the Old Testament is swallowed by a great fish and he lives in the belly of the fish for three days. And there was a, a, an idea in early Christianity called typology. Actually, it persists. And it's uh, seeing the Old Testament as prefiguring the new. So events and stories in the Old Testament have that reflect narratives in the New Testament kind of were paired. And so Jonah's sojourn in, in the belly of the whale was seen as a type for Christ's three days harrowing hell before the resurrection. And so the belly of the whale is basically 
is hell. I, this is linked into um, what's probably an, a, a sort of slightly different from a different tradition than the idea that whales will push their backs above the waves and pose as an island. And, and they are called also, I mean, they're not just called whales. In the old English version, it's called a whale. But in, in the earlier versions, it could be Aspidocoloni, which means asp turtle. Uh, this great beast that um, that has mountains on its backs and rivers and and lakes and and would you know look every bit like a like a completely convincing island. You know, when I first read this story as an undergraduate, I imagined a sort of grey hump, and you think, why on earth would you <laughs> moor your boat there and be taken in by that? But then, as my, as I kind of read into it more, I realised no, this was a this was a colossal creature. You know, I imagine now maybe those uh, those images we see of of a kind of mythical sea turtle going through space with a city on its back. It's that sort of thing. So this isn't quite the whale in our understanding of what a whale is. It's the whale as, as a sea monster, as the, as the asp turtle. It's also called Fastitocalon or Yasconius. And so that's what I was riffing on here. And especially then an object in the British Museum called the Frank's Casket, which is made of whale's bone and has an inscription in runes that says the king of terror was sad when he swam onto the shingle, whale's bone. And so it's describing a whale being beached and its own emotion. And I think that was probably the, the inspiration. The king of terror was sad. You know, that's, that's what's lying behind the passage I just read. It's absolutely fascinating. And there are many, many stories like this. So let's talk about the source material that you were working with, Amy, not just in, in you know, for the whale, for, for, for the beast chapter, but, but throughout. One in particular is the Exeter book, and I know that's not the only one, but for the listeners on, on this call, how, how do you access those? Are those freely available? Has somebody really been through the painstaking work of translating these into a form of language that we might understand today? Yes, there's a brilliant anthology by Elaine Trahan of Old and Middle English Poetry, which includes a selection of the Exeter book riddles and the elegies that I discuss in this book. Um, I put, a, you know, it's very important to me that people can go and read the original sources. Um, one of the reasons I included some translations at the end of the book, which was was actually, um, it was my editor's idea. We were, I was just going to collaborate with a friend who teaches at York, George Young. He's a medieval literature lecturer there. He, he was going to provide excerpts for me to use in the text. And then the publishers said, would you like to actually translate some of these in full? But wow. the reason that was such a exciting idea to me was was so that these these stories and these commentaries can be like stepping stones if people want into the primary sources and translations. And so there's a full reading list. But yes, that was, I'd say, Elaine Trahan would be a really good place to start, as well as the end of Wild with, uh, with George's translations. And also, I mean, for the um, Elaine's work focuses on the Old and Middle English, but there's also Jenny Rowland who translated some of the really obscure early medieval Welsh poetry that crops up in here. You also mentioned, and I wasn't expecting to find a Led Zeppelin reference in <laughs> this book, but you also reference an episode of Desert Island Discs with, with Robert Plant, who actually in a genuinely serious way, when asked what other book he would like to take in addition to the books that he gets normally, yeah. he actually mentioned this sort of book, didn't he? He mentioned Old English. Earliest, <laughs> what was it? It's, Earliest Poetry in English, the yeah. Penguin Classics Edition. Yes, and that was my, my editor again, put me onto that in here. And I had a listen and was so excited because I love Led Zeppelin and I, <laughs> and I, I didn't know why. And now that I know 
that he liked the old English elegies and and that that was suffusing their music. I get it. There's a there's a longing, a real yearning to some of their their tracks that is in tune chimes with these much much older poems. There is another section I'd like you to read, but before we get to that, this book is littered not just with things that make you think, but with sentences that make you sit up and gasp. And I, again, I would just like to share one with you because I often feel that as writers, it's so nice at times to find out how our work has connected. Yes, this whole thing is really lovely. Thank you so much. It's, <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. It's from, um, it's from the chapter Catastrophe, and it reads, to live in early medieval Britain was to be surrounded by evidence of fallen civilizations. And it just made me think, actually, that's so true. You know, and, and mm-hmm. it must have been obvious that there had been a time before, either because there are ruins or because there are structures or whatever it might be. Yeah. But that was the reality, wasn't it? That fallen, the mm-hmm. evidence of fallen civilizations was everywhere. Yes, and of civilizations that were much more powerful mm. than your own. You know, the the early Germanic migrants to Britain built in wood, and they came to this place where there was, you know, the the remnants of Roman cities. They lived outside London for a while, which must have been such a formidable, derelict city. I think they they lived in what became Aldwych, you know, outside the city of London up until the Viking incursions, as so the story goes, and then they, they sort of move back in, inside the city walls. There's an, an old English poem called The Ruin, which describes, the narrator describes walking through a derelict city and seeing these great walls of bathhouses and uh, that he imagines them or she imagines them once having rung with laughter and festivities and music. And now they're just standing empty and and covered in frost and ivy and and describes them as entergoeok, the the work of giants. And so that trying to, that kind of, that evidence that there was these these mighty civilizations that have crumbled, I think really inspired the early medieval imagination and is is palpable in these these sources, especially the old English elegies of the Exeter book. It's incredible because it does feel like this whole thing, it feels like it's a pitch for a new TV show. You know, it, it feels so accessible. It feels, you know, it feels like you can see it. You mm-hmm. can smell it. You can touch it. It's just so, it's so accessible. And, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking that actually there's no way I'm going to be able to get my head around this book because of what, of what it represents. But when you start reading it, you just, you, you think this reads like something that HBO would scream. It's amazing. It's funny that you should say that. And very kind of you to say that. But um, also, I've, um, I was in touch with um, one of the actors in Shadow and Bone, which is a Netflix right. series, just through Instagram, because he, uh, he recommended Storyland at a Shadow and Bone conference, which is my previous book. And so, you know, I, I thanked him and, and, uh, and then watched the series and was really struck, you know, by... It's a it's a you know it's a proper like uh, fantasy series um, show kind of set in a in a secondary secondary reality sort of fantasy world where um, there's a great darkness dividing the land and there's a character who's able to create light. So based on a book by Lee Bardugo, series of books, and uh, the characters constantly refer to to saints 
And so these great archetypes of light and darkness and this kind of hope of redemption. And um, while it's a very different thing from, from Wilde in many ways, I thought there is, there is something compelling and exciting about these, these worlds where, where magic is real, where the, where the supernatural isn't seen as supernatural, it's just part of life. I mean, that's, that's a, a big theme in Wilde is that we don't divide, you know, the early medieval mind did not divide between the natural and the supernatural. I suppose, you know, it's like, a, yeah, there are incubuses wandering the, the firmament that, that kind of got caught on the way down to hell with the other fallen angels and they've, they've kind of got trapped and they're, they're wandering the skies. It is another world and yet it's our world. And that's, that's very, very wonderful to me. We've covered earth. We've covered a little bit of forest. We've done catastrophe and we've done beast. Could we close mm-hmm. by talking about paradise? Um, yes, because be there is a section in paradise that is, if I only get the opportunity to read one thing for the rest of my life it's probably going to be something like this because (laughs) this section if you wouldn't mind reading it for us amy is extraordinary the boat was my refuge for the islands that spew fire and ice too especially as on sundays the island of ice is the home of judas iscariot he said god puts him there each sunday as respite from the torments of hell He did not seem dangerous, so I often lingered nearby and allowed myself a moment of his company. But it did disturb me how he relished the feeling of the bitter winds on his face and the freezing ocean on his bare, pimpled skin. I imagined hell to be a very terrible place for such tortures to count as comfort. I mean, yikes. That's just... That, I mean, that's just so much going on in that. Yes. The, 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 the restraint, the simplicity, but yet the layers of unpicking that you we could spend hours just talking about that that one particular section and i just think that this book is full of examples like that um i wondered i know it's publication day but i wondered whether you'd have a chance to reflect on this but most people i think would have been forgiven for going phd baby book and stopping there you've gone new book (laughs) <laughs> how much more, how much more, what comes next, Amy? I know, I know it, it would be nice for you to have the time to bask in what should be a tremendous success. I think it deserves to be on every bookshelf in, in the land, but do you have plans? You don't strike me like the sort of person that's done now. What's next for you? <laughs> well, I, I'd like to carry on doing exactly this until I can't hold a pen anymore. You know, that's, it's, um, it's just an utter joy and privilege and, and I mean, when I was, I remember when I was working on my PhD, um, or I just finished, and a friend of mine who graduated at the same time had gone off to, to work somewhere else. And she, uh, she said, wow, there was just something about the way we were taught to do research. It made it feel not like, not like going into some arcane, I don't know, irrelevant place, but as a way, of, it felt like a way of coping with life. That's what she said. It felt like a way of coping. And I feel like, the opportunity to to explore these sources that to to look at these amazing objects and to digest them in, in and to try and process the realities around me through these things is life-saving and i really hope i can carry on and uh, i can't say explicitly what's next but there is a, another book under contract and it's in the same sort of vein as the last two it's 
a similar scale to Storyland, Wild was quite a slim book. It will combine stories and commentaries and pictures. And I've started working on the pictures. Actually, I've started um, tutoring informally three uh, teenagers in my hometown. They're, they're really fascinated by art history and I know their parents. And so they've filled me with inspiration and I've started um, doing the illustrations for the next book just out of the kind of how, how exciting it is to know them and their ideas and their they're completely in love with with lino cut and with Freud's essay on the uncanny and you know <laughs> they're brilliant so that's um it's just keep on exploring well as i mentioned it is publication day wild is an absolute triumph amy jeffs it's been a pleasure thank you very thank much thank you mark conclusion a massive thank you then to amy jeffs for today's episode and to recap what have we learnt walk the ground soak in the sights and sounds. If you experience the places you wish to write about and spend time to reflect on the feelings you encounter, your writing will be much more vivid, real, and able to speak to all of the senses. We never know how limited our worldviews are. It may be a mystery to future generations why we believed in the things we believe in today. Reflect on the past and the world will become more visible and your mind will become more open. Surely that's essential for any writer. And I'll leave the final lesson to Amy, the way she speaks about her work, the amount of time spent researching and her love of writing. It may seem like she lives a carefree existence, free of responsibility, that you as a writer could never begin to emulate. But that's not the case at all. And for all time-poor writers out there, I think this is a reason to be hopeful. As a mother, I don't. I think it's really, or as a parent, you know, the logistical nightmare of trying to give your child the the attention and and care that they need, which is a, an absolute joy to do, and find time to work. It's not easy, and so I haven't. I wouldn't say that the last. It hasn't been plain sailing finding the time to write, but it has been. It has felt essential, and where I have had that time, it's always been due to the generosity of family and the support of family and friends. That's something that I think is important to say because mm. we can have this idea of writers in their ivory tower somehow having all the time in the world. But these books are made in a, the you know, world has been made in a imperfect way. And that's, that's all right, I think. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our new exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 